change abounds as the automotive industry moves towards electrification. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Green Sense, where we bring you eco innovations, many of which are taking place in the trucks and cars we drive today. We say hello to Tom Appel, publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive, as we kick around the latest green automotive news. Tom, welcome back to Green Sense. Thanks for having me. So much is going on in the auto industry, and we have a lot to cover today. So I thought we'd start out with uh, electric trucks. And there's so much more to cover than just Rivian when it comes to these electric pickup trucks. And you and your colleagues at Consumer Guide Automotive have uh, done a fantastic overview. Uh, so let's get right into it. Uh, share your thoughts with us on that. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting that pickup trucks are where we're starting from, but it makes some sense too. In the U.S., pickup trucks alone make up 20 to 25% of the new car market, depending on where we are in the year. Uh, so even a small fraction of those may, turns out to be an awful lot of vehicles. So we know now that the Ford F-150 Lightning, already orders are closed for this year. They have sold out of that vehicle. Uh, the Chevy EV, uh, the Silverado EV, Orders for that are kicking in now. They've got 125,000 orders for the Chevy Silverado EV. Ram has announced just today um, that the uh, Ram may be called Evolution, but they've got a website up for their electric pickup truck as well. And of course, the Rivian 1RT is on the market as we speak. So these are big times and pickup trucks are, in fact, uh, the test case, as it were. Well, in your article, uh, you talked about these legacy companies, not just in the auto industry, but in the music industry and in other industries, how it wasn't the people that were in the industry that brought about the change, right. but it was newcomers. How are these legacy auto companies really uh, stacked up to take on this whole new electrification of cars? That's a great question, because I think What's working against legacy companies obviously isn't money or technology. They have both. Uh, it's the application of that. And what they have, too, is a legacy audience. And this often works against old school manufacturers because they don't want to offend their core buyers, but they want to reach out. They want to expand. They want to keep the technology rolling. Um, and, and they can be a little bit hesitant to go all the way out there. One of the points that we make is that the most aggressive styling, for example, that we see on a new electric EV might be the Tesla Cybertruck, which is now scheduled to arrive sometime in 2023. And the Rivian, of course, brand new company, that's a startup company, uh, also very aggressive styling. But Ford didn't take styling, for example, of the new uh, F-150 Lightning anywhere, really. It's, it's, it's a redressed version of F-150. And Chevy didn't go that far, even though it's all new architecture. Well, when you have two feet in two different markets, you're not in any market fully. And right. these days, change happens so quickly. It's so competitive out there. How are these companies going to uh, be competitive as the market moves forward? One of the things that works in the favor of the legacy companies, and when we say that, we're talking about RAM, uh, Chevrolet and, and Ford primarily, um, is, is, is that they have enough capacity that they can actually dedicate to both. They have factories, separate factories for both. They can have separate marketing teams. Uh, they will be sold through the same dealerships though. So there has to be some congruity of message. Tom, a simple solution seems, why not a merger between the electric car companies and the legacy companies? And maybe you get the best of both worlds, or would you get a culture clash? 
That's a good question, because one of the things that we saw happen very recently was that Ford and Rivian seemed prepared to part ways. This after Rivian, had, Ford had invested very largely in Ford uh, to the tune of half a billion dollars. Now, uh, Ford is looking to divest itself of those shares, and they don't have any projects together coming up. So it, it'll be a volatile, uh, shaky start as, as electrification moves forward. So we've got our guru of gears here to keep us uh, abreast of all the changes that are happening in the marketplace. It'll be exciting. Um, well, one last point. Uh, tell me about COVID. Has COVID been good or bad? It sounds like there's such a demand here, but there's so many shortages with chips and other materials. How does that fare for the electrification of the automobile market? Manufacturers have been pretty careful to keep their electrification programs on track. So we've seen other vehicles be shut down and other, fa other factories be slowed down, but ultimately it looks like the, the electrification rollouts from most manufacturers are on schedule. In fact, things are coming surprisingly quickly. Well, let's move on to the New York Times uh, article. They tell us that 2022 could be a critical year for electric cars. Give us the thumbnail on that. Yeah, one of the interesting things about this year is that we're finally going to have electric vehicles that are available. We've been talking about them for a long time, but up until this point, and I mean, like right now, the vehicles that have been available have been relatively small and didn't have broad consumer appeal. We had the Nissan Leaf, which was a fine car. We had the Chevrolet uh, Bolt, for example, and the not very appealing Mitsubishi i-Me, for example. These were the pioneering cars. These didn't appeal to a broad audience, but now we have real electric cars that are out there for people to buy. The Volkswagen ID4, the Mustang Mach-E, the Nissan Aria is coming, a new Subaru and a new Toyota are coming. These are mass market, small crossovers, exactly where the heart of the market is. This is the big test. Well, the New York Times did a fantastic job and very thorough on the investigation on the report they did. Um, but there seems to be some headwinds out there with EVs. You know, one is the chip shortage. Uh, I recently read that uh, EVs use more chips than uh, uh, the gas engines. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and the numbers are a little different depending on who you ask. But the average vehicle probably has about 30 chips in it. And that number can, can multiply if you're talking about a premium vehicle like a Mercedes-Benz S-Class or something like that. But because the electric management system, the, the uh, motor control unit and whatnot, and battery management systems and EVs are more complicated, they do use more chips. So right now, they are a draw on that, uh, on that very limited supply. And of course, charging stations seem to be a real uh, impediment. There's just not enough of them. Uh, and and uh, depending on what brand of car you have, you have access to different chargers. Speak to that. Yeah, and this is an interesting conversation because some pretty good, pretty reliable sources are starting to talk about this. Cars.com, for example, which is an excellent review site, um, is, is their formal recommendation is not to buy an electric vehicle unless you have charging at home. Well, that's fine for now for the, for the marketplace because there are plenty of people who have homes who don't have electric vehicles yet. But when we get three years out and these new vehicles become used vehicles, or when people start to enter that market who are a little bit more reluctant, I think we're gonna run into what may be our first barrier uh, to acceptance. And, and that's the people who cannot charge at home and who find out that perhaps commercial charging is not especially affordable or more affordable than buying gasoline. And when you think about how many people live in apartment complexes uh, yeah. that they just take some out of the market unless the complexes start putting multiple chargers in their stations, which, again, I could just see uh, battles there for chargers. 
Sure, and that cost is not is not small either. For for one person to put in a charger at their house is one thing, but but for an apartment complex who may have 100, 200, or 300 residents, that's a lot of electricity and a lot of permits and a lot of code and a lot of construction. So the barriers to that are higher, and ultimately they may mean higher rent for some people. And another big issue out there is just the cost and the price of these cars. A lot of the uh, EVs are coming out at the high end of the market, of course. You know, uh, it makes it's, it's better for the manufacturers, but it puts a lot of people out of the uh, price range for these cars. Speak to that. It is. And what we're seeing, too, is that the high-end version of these electric vehicles are launching first as well. That happened with the Volkswagen ID4, which came out last year, and they did their big battery version, and that was a little bit more expensive. Chevrolet did just introduce at CES the Equinox EV, uh, and they're talking about a starting price on that of $30,000. Now, I don't know what kind of equipment that entails, but that's an exciting and enticing price. Right. And uh, lastly, I think it's production. You know, as you mentioned, a lot of these uh, cars are sold out. They've, they've met their production quotas and there seems to be, you know, more demand than there is supply. Uh, how long is that going to take to get that to equalize? That's a good question. And I don't know the answer. Um, EV acceptance is sort of based on EV usage. And I think when people start seeing their friends and neighbors driving electric vehicles and finding out that they like them, which we hope is the case, <laughs> we'll start to see more acceptance. Uh, and, and like so many things, this is being driven probably by the commercial side. There's some big news, and it's sort of related to this conversation, is that Ford has started delivering its first um, e-transit vans, which is nice. And people are going to start seeing those. And there's no doubt that the people who own these vans and deliver with them will have electric vehicle plastered on the side in huge letters. And to put this in context, Tom, the combustion engine cars took how long to build the infrastructure and reach the level of sales that EVs have had in a very short time? It was famously hard to get gasoline in 1910. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so I would imagine, I don't know how many cars sold in the first uh, you know, 30 years from the 1900s to 1930s, but I would imagine EVs have eclipsed that in just a couple of years. That's probably true. And so that's what we have to realize is we're, we're very impatient these days. We want change to happen immediately. So it's going to take time. And these are natural impediments to any new market. Well, on the same note, uh, Nissan's moving from internal combustion engines in Europe. That's uh, a big push. Some of the uh, Japanese auto manufacturers have been lagging behind on EVs. What's the word on that? Yeah, that's an interesting statement that Nissan recently released. And then there's a lot of asterisks attached to it. And if you check out the asterisks, it's not in developing markets and not for trucks and not for that. But Nissan would just be another maker who has dedicated and drawn a line in the sand as to when they're not going to be building or developing uh, gasoline engines anymore. Uh, you know, the best one, I think, what Cadillac is 2028, Volvo's 2030. Uh, all these manufacturers are starting to, to, to make sure that they have a claim out there so that people know that they're electrifying. Interesting. And, uh, you know, there's always market share to grab in a declining market. So I'm sure there's always going to be holdouts that are going to want gas cars. Probably they'll bring back stick shifts too. <laughs> <laughs> um, this one caught me by surprise. So you're going to have to explain this to us. Could self-driving cars increase carbon emissions? A lot of good questions there. One of the interesting things about carbon emissions um, and then the use of self-driving cars and, and vehicles of that sort is, is that 
right now you get into your car, you start it and you leave. With self-driving cars, there's a lot of things that go on uh, after the fact and before the fact. Cars will preheat, um, that'll be using a lot of energy. You're going to be using um, a considerable amount of energy. People don't realize this for things like the autonomous functions. There is a lot of activity there. The cameras, the LIDAR, the radar, that stuff uses a lot of energy. And, and ultimately it was not, even with gasoline powered vehicles right here at the end of their development, half of the emissions from those vehicles comes from the brake, the brakes and the tires in the form of particulate emission. So we're not removing that much from the operation. And it's possible that we're gonna be using an awful lot of electricity to replace that. So are you talking about autonomous uh, gas powered vehicles or EVs or both? Uh, both actually, but, but the autonomous function itself is not without its, its price. And, and then that's largely in the form of energy. And then, and then also, and the, I don't think this was discussed in any material I've read recently, General Motors and Ford's uh, autonomous, um, autonomous systems are based on mapping of public highways, which in itself is labor and, and uh, energy intensive. Could you embellish on that? What do you mean? Um, Ford's uh, Blue Cruise and General Motors Super Cruise are very different than the full self-driving system that's used by Tesla in that because of lawyers and a certain amount of sanity, uh, <laughs> the systems only operate on pre-mapped routes that, that these, the computers that operate the autonomous vehicles understand. And what's interesting about that is that other vehicles are used to map and remap those, those routes. So there's, there is money and labor and energy involved in keeping these things running. Oh, interesting. So, Tom, have you seen any recent reports or studies that talk about uh, trading uh, smokestack emissions for tailpipe emissions? You know, our, our electric cars need a more robust grid, and a lot of that's still powered by coal-powered plants, which right. produce smokestack emissions, and trade the uh, uh, tailpipe emissions that gas-burning cars had. Is there a mass balance and does it really uh, uh, move us towards less emissions uh, with, with more electric cars being tapping onto the grid? Yeah, I think the best analysis is, is of this situation I've seen in two different places. One is a guy who runs a, uh, um, a YouTube channel called Engineering Explained, and he's a mechanical engineer who knows a great deal about cars. And the other is over at Green Car Reports, which is an excellent automotive site. And in both cases, they seem to believe that ultimately an electric vehicle consumes on average one third of the energy that does a internal combustion engine powered vehicle. And that is taking into account uh, coal fired plants. I'm sorry, not consumes less, but produces one third the emissions. I'm sorry, that's what I meant to say. Got uh, it. That includes coal produced electricity. And our power plants are getting cleaner. They're moving more towards renewable. So it sounds like long-term uh, it is gonna be much better. Well, let's move on to our last topic, and that's the return of the Chicago Auto Show. <laughs> After last year's February show uh, was moved to the summer, we're now back to its traditional calendar indoors. Anything you're looking forward to uh, being introduced at the show this year? There's a couple of fun things coming, but I'm really looking forward to seeing those EVs up close that we were just talking about. All of the EV pickups that we just discussed should be available there for people to see. So the Silverado EV, um, the Ford F-150 Lightning, the Tesla Cybertruck. Well, the Tesla Cybertruck will not be there, I'm sorry, but the Rivian 1AC team might be. I need some clarity on that. Um, as well as, uh, and this has got nothing to do with anything green, it's just kind of fun. Nissan's going to be introducing a, uh, a trio of uh, specially themed Frontier pickups 
that are very cool. One is retro, one is off-road and desert. The other one uh, looks like a caravan truck. So um, very exciting stuff. What are your thoughts about moving the auto show back indoors uh, in February versus the, uh, the summer uh, a venue that they had? You know, in Chicago, the auto show was always this wonderful break from the cabin fever of winter. <laughs> and, and it usually came exactly when the weather was becoming horrible. <laughs> Traditionally, early February, it's just 10 degrees out. We get 30 inches of snow. And, and just the vast, open, warm space of McCormick Place is always just a wonderful breather. Um, I, I know that COVID taints all that a little bit, but it's still going to be exciting to see people there. You bring out a great point. I don't know if it's COVID, but I feel like cabin fever is at an all-time high this year. Yeah, so absolutely. We're all looking for something new to do. Well, Tom, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, thank you for joining us, and we'll look forward to talking to you in a few weeks. Sounds good. The pleasure is mine. Thank you. That's Tom Appel, publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive. Read his articles and reviews at consumerguide.com and check out his podcast, Car Stuff. I'm Robert Colangelo. This is GreenSense. Subscribe to our podcast at greensensefarms.com and listen to the GreenSense Minute Thursdays and Saturdays on 105.9 WBBM Chicago.